Anybody who has a tough life has a choice. Either use that against yourself and the people around you, and then like you know, um, hurt yourself and the people around you in the process, or use that as your motivation to be great. Hey everyone, we're here on the Founder Hour with Pat and Posh, and we have a special guest, our good friend Michael Kashishian, better known as Michael K here in the community. And we are going to sit down and talk to him about his upbringing and what drives him and what he is up to these days. So, Michael, thank you for having us, and we're excited to sit down with you and uh, chat about what you've been up to lately. Sounds like a plan, man. Thank you. So let's kick it off with you know a simple question. Tell us about your upbringing and, you know, a little bit about how you grew up. Well, I'm an Armenian-American born in Hollywood, raised in Glendale. That's a typical story, huh? Yeah, so you've heard that one before. Um, you know, my parents came here after leaving a communist country and uh, had a plan for a better future. They met here, and um, about three, four years later, after they came to America, I was born, they met at a wedding. And um, I have a classic immigrant, first-generation Armenian person story, you know, like working hella hard, odd jobs, and, you know, now semi-balling. Love it. Love what, did it. You, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, you know, I felt like I was a grown-up when I started because my parents they got, got me really involved. So I never really had this perspective of a grown-up life versus a kid life. Mm -hmm. I just knew that, like, whatever you have to be, you have to be the best. Such a competitive world we were in and watching my parents kind of like like while my mom was going to school, learning English, my dad was studying to be a contractor and get his license and working at the same time. And, um, you know, I always had the perspective that there was no like childhood, you know, like my parents raised me in a way where I was always, you know, had the feeling of freedom. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were a lighthearted family, but I was privileged to to look at life not as like a, a career choice or like picking a path, but instead dancing through like daily tasks. Yeah. What do you think made it that way? You know, I, I, I think that it was how involved my parents got me. You know, one thing I really do admire about my mom and dad is they never really treated me like a kid. Um, so because I was always like a voice and, you know, like they didn't have the whole like, oh, you know, Mike, like we're going to have an adult conversation. You know, you might want to go and play with the kids. Like we would have like serious adult conversations where the family was over and there was, there was relationship problems amongst my parents, siblings and, uh, financial problems. And I think they just like caught on that. Like I had the ability to handle being a part of serious conversations. So like, you know, when you, when you always have a voice, you know, you grow up fast, and um, I know, know. I know when Armenian parents uh, know other languages, they usually like leave the kids out of it by talk, speaking the other language that the kid doesn't understand. <laughs> so it sounds like they were very open with you. Yeah, you I think that's a shortcoming. A yeah, in a lot of uh, ethnic families, and I, I don't want to speak on behalf of all ethnic people because right. that's a very subjective way of describing people. But because um, American families might have the same issue, it's just I think as soon as you start building borders whether they're between countries or between people, you create um, like entitlement. And like, um, I, I, I think that there's like a free flow to life that the universe sets an example for. 
and I was raised in a very free-flowing family. And because of that, I never felt like I was married to a belief mm -hmm. or, or married to a career or a decision. So it's hard for me to answer that question of like what I want to be when I grew up because like I haven't grown up yet yeah. and, I, and I still like love what I am and I think like I'm going to keep being this way. And the, the details may change. You know, I'm in catering, I, I'm in real estate, I'm in design, you know, I, I dibble dabble in all these different industries. But I think that's really what the future generation has an opportunity of doing now is focusing less on um, like who they are and more on just like, like what they want to do for the world and how they feel. Mm -hmm. We're so emotional as people, you know, I think it's very counteractive to ask us to try and build a barrier of our identity. You know, that, that, that's really where anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and fear starts. Yeah. You know um, I mean? But I'm kind of curious, like, um, you know, as a kid, many people are maybe interested in a specific sport or music or something like in particular, like what were your interests? What did you like doing every single day? I'm interested in people. Okay. So um, I was never a big sports fan. Um, I watched the Lakers because I'm from Los Angeles and that's what all the guys do. And I was a fan of watching Shaquille O'Neal dunk on people, you know, mm -hmm. and Kobe Bryant do his heroics. Um, I was a fan of different industries because... I was exposed to them from my family, but it's going to be difficult to get an answer out of me that really like corners my decision on that. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is like, I aspire to understand people. I still think they're the most beautiful commodity on earth. So I always made decisions in life based on what was going to have me interacting with the most amount of people. So I played basketball and hockey because it was a team sport. I didn't enjoy tennis as much, even though I played tennis, um, because it didn't involve the interaction of, of a team as much. Mm -hmm. um, so like I found myself succeeding anytime I had to be elastic with humans. So I was an ASB. Um, so that was like awesome. I was always a part of community efforts and nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. So I feel like if I had to like answer that question, I'm in the profession of of working with people. Right. So would you consider yourself like a mega extrovert? I think that's an understatement. Yeah, for sure. That's that that's a title I'd be comfortable owning. Just off the charts. Mike, what do you think makes you so special at interacting with others? I've seen how you interact with people and you're very good whether you're dealing with an extrovert, a mega extrovert, an introvert, someone you've never met in your life, someone you're best friends with, someone you're family with, you treat them all almost, you know, the same. But what makes it so special, you know, on your end? And how did you get better at doing that? Nerses, it all comes from practice. I tap more shoulders of strangers than the average person. Mm -hmm. That's how I know how to interact with different people. Mm -hmm. It's because I instigate a lot of communication. I mean, you've been with mm -hmm. me a few times. Mm -hmm. Like when I go to Starbucks, I'm talking to everybody, mm -hmm. whether or not they talk back to me. And I'm building data like Facebook does. And I'm analyzing every reaction to every single thing I do everywhere I go. And ultimately, you know, if you're conscious enough, and you're not just like shooting machine gun blasts of bullshit everywhere. Like you start catching on to the way people react to things. And I'm intuitive because of that. You know, like I didn't never really watch TV. I didn't really read any books. I've never read a book from cover to cover. Um, I don't know much about who the big actors are. I don't really know who the big rap artists are. Um, but I understand the way human beings tick because the time that people are spending analyzing those things and learning about those things, I'm just literally like massaging random strangers uh, emotionally, physically, mentally. 
And it's a practice thing, you know? Um, like it's the it's the one thing that I spent the most amount of time doing and it's the one thing I'm best at is is, is connecting with people. Mm-hmm. And where do you think that love of people comes from? Do you, do you feel like it comes from your parents? It comes or, from my mom. Um, so like my mom is like, I'm a carbon copy of my mom just mm-hmm. born in America with a dick, you know? Um, which means I smoke more weed than she does and I'm like more sexually active, you know? Um, a part of that has to do with the fact that I was born here. A part of that has to do with the fact that my dad's kind of chill, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a different subject for a different podcast, <laughs> of course. That's the sex hour. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just modeled after my mom, Mary Kay Kashishian. She's the most social person I've ever met in my life. And she's just really in tune with people. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that she had such a tough upbringing. And, like, you know, she had a choice. I, anybody who has a tough life has a choice. Right. Either use that against yourself and the people around you and then like, you know, um, hurt yourself and the people around you in the process or use that as your motivation to be great. And I was really lucky that I had a mom, you know, and a dad who had a challenging upbringing and they decided to have that be their motivation to do great things. Mm-hmm. So I modeled after my mom and the way she would communicate with people. You know, my mom always told me, um, if you don't learn how to give things away that are free, You'll never be able to give things away that have value. So, um, like, a compliment is free. A smile is free. It costs you nothing. If you don't learn how to give those to people, who's to say that you're going to make millions and billions of dollars one day and learn how to give that? Uh, And the truth of the matter is, like, if you don't learn how to give away time, um, you're never going to learn how to reward yourself with it either. And you're Mm -hmm. just going to abuse your time, abuse your sleep, and you'll accomplish things in life, but you'll get no bliss. Mm-hmm. You know, these are words directly from my mom's mouth. And I, I, I was lucky that I was a good listener. You know, some people in life, they're just not good at listening. Mm-hmm. I had, a, I, I had a, a really awesome person tell me something, a compliment the other day. Um, and she said, um, Michael, you know what I like about you is that you're interesting and interested. And no one had ever like framed that to me that mm-hmm. way. But I, I really always, I was humbled and honored to hear that, you know? And, and it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of people who are interested who aren't very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are um, interesting but seem to be uninterested in anybody. And I think the balance of that is really what creates a social person. Mm-hmm. So growing up, I know a lot of, like, there are many people that have this kind of one-track mind of, of I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a doctor. And sometimes that's an influence directly from folks' parents, you know, like especially with ethnic families. Um but it sounds like yours was different. You were kind of just living and enjoying every moment and not really like didn't have your sights set on one specific thing. So when it came time to, you know, graduate high school and it's kind of everyone, all your friends are going to college. What, what did you end up doing? So because I was so scholastic, um, you know, I was on schedule to be like the number one male student in America. I was competing in all of the big like student leadership camps. Um you know, like I kind of got myself into the like, oh, I, I guess I'm going to get my a- MBA. I guess I'm going to become an attorney because it just felt like the right the, thing the momentum was yeah. taking me there, you yeah. know, and I was never very intrigued by medicine. So like the top two of either you're going to be a doctor, or you're going to be a lawyer, like a lawyer felt like the right fit. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't say there was a time when I thought that's mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. I was going to do. But it was never like I had my sights set on it. It's almost like I was just so geared and plowing through life that that was the door that had the brightest light on it. Um, but as I was segueing from finishing UCLA and going towards that direction, 
Um, I asked my folks because I had graduated from UCLA a year early because I did all the jumpstart programs and the what, AP classes. What did you study? What did you study? I did UCLA? economics and history. Okay. And I ended up getting a minor in drama because I got sucked into the theater mm. uh, where I had a lot of fun, I must I admit. I can see that. Um, Michael K on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. I was on stage and I killed it. <laughs> um, at least I thought I did. It was really fun. What was one of your favorite roles that you played? I played a role called The First Man is where they had me a character that was on a stage with nothing on it and then a bright light would beam on me and it was me coming to as an adult accustomed to the real world but in nothingness like a blank universe and I had to like like figure out like what this was and it was like two hours long of me just like going in and out of like insanity um and I enjoyed that because um I, I like the idea of toying with um whether this is like reality or not and like what consciousness really is mm-hmm. um but, you know, uh, I asked my folks if I could take a year off, move to West Hollywood. And, um, like, instead of going straight into more schooling, like, just, like, flow for a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a good student and I felt like I deserved it. And my parents gave me that that right. Um, but when I told them I was moving to West Hollywood, my mom was really tripping out because she thought I was gay. Like, why would, why would anyone move to West Hollywood? I'm like, Mom, it's a great city. <laughs> like, the only reason is not right, yeah. because it, it allows for homosexual freedom. Um that's just a funny Ar- Ar- Armenian corollary, of course. And then uh, she ended up catching me, like, you know, having multiple girlfriends at the same time. And I, th- I think that put her at ease. Um, and one day I had walked across the street to Saddle Ranch. Because um, after work, I was working for a real estate office, kind of like dibble dabbling. My, my folks were in real estate. So, you know, I, I always thought that real estate was an industry that would absorb me at some point in time. Um, so after work, I would like walk right across the street. I lived right behind the Mondrian Hotel mm-hmm. where the Sky Bar was. Mm-hmm. And I used to walk across the street and go to House of Blues and go to Saddle Ranch and just kind of go bar hopping and kind of like segue the, 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 that latter half of my day. And I saw this Rastafari guy. Um, like he had a big turban on and he was sitting amongst like this like smoking patio with a bunch of people. And like he caught my eye immediately. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing here? Uh, so I walked up to him. I'm like, I'm like, hey, man, like, what's up? He's like, hey, respect, man. That's less. Um, I was like, hey, bro, you having a good time? He's like, yeah, man, you know, I'm mean, good. We're hanging with the Virgin. I said, um, are these your friends? Um, and he was like, no, no, I'm mean, with the Damien Marley band, man. You know, I'm mean, just here. We're going to perform at UCLA tonight. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, cool. Um, tonight? He's like, no, no, I'm mean, tomorrow night. But we came in tonight. So I look at him. I'm like, listen, bro, like, I got a bunch of weed, guitars, drums, ton of friends who play music. Let's go across the street and just fucking hang, you know? Like, like this place is whack. This is a touristy At spot. At your place? At my place, right across the street. He's like, yeah, man, no problem. I was like, call your friends. I'll call my friends. He's like, yeah, man, I got no friends. You know, I'm a, man, a guy's in the studio. I'm like, okay, cool. So I took him across the street. Um, I called a bunch of my buddies, and we just, like, made, like, a whole awesome affair. We're jamming, playing music. One of his buddies had came along. He was telling us stories about how he was on, like, a donkey one day with Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, like, it was just this awesome time. Um, and at the end of the night, he looks at me and goes, like, Michael, you are Rastaman. And I was like, oh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm flattered. <laughs> Thank you, you know. <laughs> and he goes, Nama, you are Rasta. I said, okay, great, you know. I, I'm going to take you to Reggae on the River with me. I was like, oh, no way. I've always wanted to go to Reggae on the River. Like, it's like the longest running reggae uh-huh. festival in the country in Humboldt County. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, yeah, it sounds like a great idea, you know. Uh, I was wider back then than I am now, of course. Um, and, um, so a few months passed by, I never hear from IFA. It's Friday, long weekend, 7.30 in the morning. We're doing roll calls. 
Like we're getting ready to kill it. Um, we're working for like a solid team, like two really badasses. Mm-hmm. Our office we used to be the office they used to film the entourage at. Right. So it was on the top of the ninth floor, of the eighty five sixty building. Like we were hot shots in two thousand and four. Like it's like the real estate boom status. So um, I get a phone call at seven thirty in the morning from a number that's like plus seven four five three 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 six two whatever. Um, and um, so I pick up the phone. And he's like, Michael, it's Ifa. May I come to pick you up, man? We're going to reggae on the river. I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, Ifa, 7.30 in the morning, dude. I, I, I got, I'm at work. I can't go. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to pick you up right now. May I come in with Damien? I'm like, oh, shit. So I hang up the phone. I call my mom. I'm like, mom, hey, Bob Marley. Yeah, dreadlock guy, weed smoker. The guy that I have posters of all of my room. Like, like his son is a really awesome singer. And one of his backup singers wants to take me to Ray Gunder. It's a long story. He's like, should I go? I'm just like, yeah, go. So I call my sister. She's in the middle of humanities in like Providence High School. That's, like, my, no, that's was, my high school too. I see that. So she's like, I'm, I'm like, no need. Like, check it out. Like, I fucking met Damien Marley's backup singer, dancer, guy. He's super cool. He thinks I'm a Rasta. Um, uh, he wants to take me to Reggae on the River. I was like, okay, cool, sure. Like, uh, like, what should I do? She's like, are you kidding me? Get your ass up and go. You don't fucking even hate your job anyway. I was like, okay, that's true. So I get up. I run downstairs. I run back to my place. I start twisting up some doobies. I throw some clothes into a bag. I'm wearing a wife beater and my Grateful Dead uh, board shorts and some sandals. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm getting ready. Like, what do I do? I put $100 in my pocket. I put my ID in my pocket. They're honking the horn outside. I run downstairs. I jump in the car. We go straight to the airport. I realize I forgot my bag. So I'm like, literally, I'm wearing three articles of clothing. A wife, beater, a wife beater, my trunks, and like these rainbow uh, like sandals that I hate because they have like the, the thong thing that goes in your toes that I cannot stand. <laughs> Not a fan of those, yeah. Um, but like I had one of my white buddies that left them. He's a really awesome guy, Jake, Jake Simmons. He'll be hearing this podcast one day. So now I got hundred bucks in my pocket. Tickets to go to Oakland are ninety bucks, and then I'm hungry as hell. Um, I spent ten dollars buying three fish fillets because that's what Rastafaris do apparently from McDonald's. Um, and now I head over to this reggae festival. Um, and in the process of going into this reggae festival, I get enamored by the whole humbled community, and it's my first ever experience just being a part of something that awesome. And in the process. Um, you know, I had been on stage jammed with the backup singers and dancers of the original Wailers, and I got consumed by all these amazing people. I didn't have to spend a dollar. I was being fed. I was being taken care of. I came back with, like, airbrush tattoos and a turban and a huge, like, Native American feathered hat, and I spent three or four days in the middle of the forest, long and short of it, and um, I realized that like, I don't think that I was designed to, like, be dealing with paperwork and, and, and going into the corporate world and, right. and managing real estate portfolios. That I just got the feeling that I have um, the luxury of being able to explore different options in my life that involve interacting with people and kind of, like, testing the limits of humanity, really. Um, and I couldn't think of a better way than to, like, go into food. So you have this amazing experience and you of course, have this kind of frame of mind at this point that I can't really be doing what I'm doing right now. I can't be going back to the office, can't be dealing with real estate. Like, you know, my parents are handling that. Let them do that. I now needed to go and explore my kind of creative side and kind of go figure out how do I infuse myself and more people. So you get into food, you start the catering company. Mm -hmm. Is that the first thing that you do? I go to culinary school. Okay. So I move back, I move out of my spot, I break my lease, I come back home, tell my folks I'm not going to go to school anymore, I'm going to go to culinary school, I'm not going to go to law school. Sorry to cut you off, but like, what about, I'm just trying to understand the connection between what you experienced at the festival and coming back and and like, why food? How, How did you have that kind of realization? I felt like food still is 
the glue of society. And I wanted to get straight into whatever it was that was going to involve me being around the most amount of people um, with their guard down. Because mm-hmm. that's what happened. Like, like that, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. So when, when people can just be, they are beautiful. And if I can find a way of being around people being, you know, I'm going to be paving a beautiful life. And I also saw myself as a catalyst to amplifying those experiences. You know, I'm not going into the details, but I went as a one-man show to a 15,000-person festival. And I felt like like I really have a special something when it comes to how I can communicate with people and bond with people. And, you know, like it was clear to me, you know, I think one of the first things to, to accept and this is, of course, my theory mm-hmm. that no one has to hold true, but is you're born with your personality. And I think a lot of us, we, we, we shine a light on experience and learning and how important it is to like study stuff and like develop who you are. But I really, truly do believe now that there's a genetic phenomenon, something crazy about the way your DNA just decides to replicate itself and mutate, um, where like you are who you are when you're born. And that was what I connected with. I realized, I'm like, dude, you are a person by design that's meant to be breaking bread and in an electric environment. Mm -hmm. So when I stopped and I asked myself, how can I be in that environment as often as possible, playing the role of host, not guest, the natural reaction was like, you need to become a chef. Mm -hmm. You need to be in the middle of a happy environment as the guy who is spreading the fuel of life, and right. that's food. At any point, are you thinking, great, I want to pursue this passion, I want to focus on this amazing personality personality that I have, connecting with people. Did you ever think about, how do I make money? Fortunately and un- unfortunately, Nersus, money has never been a, like an object for me. I've had this blind faith that if you're good at something and you work hard, whatever amount of money that you're deserving Mm -hmm. of having, you will get. Right. Now, the truth of the matter is not every industry has the same capacity. Mm -hmm. So if you were to just, excuse me, stop and think, is this the most lucrative path for me? You know, my answer would have been no. Mm -hmm. But because I have faith in the economy and the market, in rewarding people, for working really hard, um, I knew I would survive. I didn't go into it thinking that this was going to be how I was going to thrive. But I knew for sure there's no way in the world that if I worked hard, no matter what industry I chose, I knew I was going to make enough money to survive. It was almost like a byproduct of you just kind of going with your passions and what you wanted to do and and like just expressing your true self. Like the money was going to come. Yeah, I just knew the money was going to come. And I didn't know how much was going to come, but I knew however much did, Mm -hmm. that's what I deserved. Mm. Right. You know, because money is just one of the rewards that you get for living. It's the one that we stress the most, but it's just one of a basket of things you get in life. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because most people have a limited capability of using the other tools like friendship and, you know, just like the free commodities of life, like the sky and the sun and the earth, that most people take those things for granted. Mm-hmm. So they don't see the value. And they're left with money and only money and materials to develop their identity. Luckily, I never had that issue because of the way I was raised. So I knew that 
I can take so many other beautiful serums and throw them into my beakers Mm -hmm. and create a beautiful life experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of boring when it comes to the subject of money. Mm -hmm. People who are really like excited about finding out how to make money, like like my relationship will expire to them fast Mm -hmm. because I really can give a fuck. Right. Um, so you go to culinary school uh, and you come out and most people that go to culinary school probably don't end up starting their own company. They, they might go somewhere and work as a chef and then try to make, make it to executive chef mm-hmm. and then maybe later down the road open up their own restaurant or something. But you didn't do that. You came out of college, uh, out of culinary school and you started a catering company? Yeah, well, I was always involved in the family business. So I had a decent baseline of the understanding of the business world. Yeah. So um, I had a head start when it comes to that. You know, I understood how to open up a corporation, what type of tax implications mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All different the businesses have, all like the little stuff. stuff. Of course, yeah. you never know it all, but right. I, I had a decent understanding because I was always a part of the family business. Family business was first, schooling was second, and then personal aspirations were third. So after culinary school, and I had an interesting run through culinary school because um, I was like very quickly realized that I wasn't a school guy. Um, so I built my catering company in school with the students in school. Mm. So I kind of like had a fight club type of situation going where I realized that I can manipulate the system mm-hmm. and I can be able to take all the product from school that was going to be thrown away um, because of how much waste there is in experimentation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I found a way of recycling that product, re like reformatting it, packaging it and selling it. Um, uh, which I'm proud of, even though it may imply a little bit of sleaziness. Like, I think we live in a sleazy world, and I don't think that that was sleazy. It was creative, but it did involve me breaking some rules. No laws broken, but rules for sure. I mean, I don't think any person that's become ultra successful and has tapped into their creative side has followed the rule. I don't think that following the rules really is going to get you anywhere yeah. that you want to really go. Yeah, yeah. And and believing that really helps you get more aggressive, too. So whether it's right. true or false, it's right. just a good way of keeping yourself gangster. Yeah. Um, so then when I got out of culinary school, what I thought was going to be a career in culinary, I actually wanted to go into like the food network and be a food personality because all my chefs in school were like, dude, you're not going to make it in the kitchen. Like you don't have the discipline. You're too crazy. Um, just like be a food personality, bro. Like you're really articulate and you're funny and you're smart and you're charismatic. So that was like how people were guiding me, you know, before I like burned down like my first 10 restaurants. Um, they, their, their advice was just like, Dude, food is a broad industry, you know. Um, but as soon as I got out of culinary school, our family got faced with a few tax audits. And that was the first time that it happened. And as the golden child, I was responsible for taking care of that. So I kind of put a hold on my culinary career. And I started to, like, deal with, like, bank statements and going over Amex statements. and Which is your favorite thing, dealing with paper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can imagine that was a test. But I think the, I think to, the thing to remember is... You know, it's people first. So the first question you asked me was like what industry I wanted to go into and how I decided to do this. And my answer was to you, I, I, is people were first. My mom and dad are still my most important people mm-hmm. in my life. And I felt uh, like it was just an obvious thing to do that I was going to... It was put, your obligation to yeah, really kind of answer that call. Yeah, Yeah, I could put my freaking dreams aside for a second. At the end of the day, they weren't my dreams anyway. Like I'm still just free-flowing. So I knew that I could fucking do a tax audit like a ballerina and I'll just make it fun and you know like we'll find a way of drinking enough coffee and it'd be, and, it'd be and the dancing. coolest damn tax audit yeah, yeah, really yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so so I spent a couple years just trying to help get my parents out of that situation that I was a part of getting themselves into too because mm-hmm. I was really aggressive and I was the one that asked them to buy all the properties and um, it was just like this beautiful experience that we learned a ton out of 
And then a couple years after that, we automated the businesses and like things kind of settled down. And I got a um, a phone call from my buddy, uh, Steve Eskenderian, who owns Zonku Chicken, as one of the four guys who owns Zonku Chicken. And he was like, hey, dude, my brother's, um, I can't make it to the NRA food show, the National Restaurant Association's Food and Wine Convention in Chicago. I have an extra ticket. Would you want to come? And then just like, like it was like an aha moment of being like, oh, yeah, I went to culinary school. Like, I should probably like get back in the game, you know? So I told him, I said, yeah, for sure. And I called a couple of my buddies that I went to culinary school with who were a part of like the madness who had like been working for different catering companies and restaurants now. And I'm like, yo, I'm back. Um, and like, I'm about to go to this food convention and like, I want to rock and roll. Like, um, let's build like Captain Planet, you know? You guys can keep working wherever you work, but like, I'll pull some gigs off. Like, let's, let's launch a catering company. It's like completely like unique to itself, you know? Um, so they were all down. Uh, and I built a catering company by making a website that had no food photos on it. Just a kitchen 12,000, join the revolution on the bottom. And when you click the, click the join the revolution button, it was like a little blurb about like what we're trying to do and just like talk shit, swallow spit and do awesome catering and, and see where that takes us. Tell us about your first gig that you booked. So I got really lucky. Um, my buddy, Steve, who was the guy that I pretty much like started throwing elbows with in, cul- in culinary school? He had gone like just drinking his ass off at a bar, and and met a random guy talking about fishing because they were both from Detroit. And um, he's like, yeah, you know, we just launched our catering company. He had a business card, it just like literally the business card just said kitchen12,000.com. Um, and I guess he gave it to that person, and he and that guy's wife was opening up a bakery. And he was like, oh, I met this really cool chef. Um, we should talk to him. So she jumps on the website and messages me. And is like, hey, my name is Melissa Sanders. We just opened up Essential Chocolates in Culver City. And um, we were approached by Yelp to do a party. And um, I guess my, my husband met your partner and you really liked him. Um, so I'm just reaching out to you. I don't know what, what we could do. So I'm like, oh, cool, for sure. You know, like we're ready to rock, you know. We own a cutting board and a knife and a couple old chefs. It's like, oh, all you need. Um, so I hit her up and she's like, yeah, so like um, we're going on a walkthrough tomorrow. Yelp is launching this thing where mm-hmm. they do um, like events for their elite. Right. Um, and I, they approach us and they want us to do like a little, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. a chocolate station. So I'm like, yeah, can I jump on the walkthrough? Like, yeah, sure, come tomorrow. So on the walkthrough, I realized I'm like, wow, this is like a pretty solid opportunity, you know? Um, so I kind of looked at the moving parts and I realized like no one really was the glue to the operation. There's a bunch of just like vendors that they'd reached out to and like some girls that were assigned by Yelp to kind of be like the ambassadors for this. But I felt like there was a chance for me to kind of like just take over. So I proposed us not as a catering company, but as an event production company. And I told them that like I could facilitate the entire thing. And I can like glue all the vendors together. And I I pitched this really radical design for a party that was designed around sweet foods called Mm -hmm. Sweet September. And I ended up like, hiring 16 people in seven days and I built a company based around this one giant party. Um, I just had like the instinct that it was going to be something big. So I pulled all my like resources together and we threw this ridiculous like theatrical like makeup outfit just like awesome wonderland party Mm -hmm. um, that I just got lucky to be able to pull off just from like sheer like motivation not sleeping and like um, we ended up like getting written up by yeah. like all these different food bloggers as like this super creative catering company. 
and um, our phones haven't stopped ringing ever since. Amazing. Something I'm something I'm really uh, like a big fan of is this concept of exposure. You know, I think um, you know when when someone when you really hear about someone's story and like the things that they were exposed to, you kind of connect the dots of like how they got to where they are. So I'm curious because like you you went to culinary school and you learned about food. But throwing an event isn't just food. It's the ambiance. It's the design. It's mm-hmm. the, the, the overall feeling of being there and feeling good. Where do you think that all came from? Well, again, growing up, my mom was always very festive. So, like, that's not a unique story. She still is. I see all the Instagram posts. Yeah, yeah. She's, like, she's always creating stuff and making stuff. So, like, my eye saw things. But it's not like I was raised in this royal family where my... Parents were hiring catering companies and we had Moroccan themed bar mitzvahs and shit that yeah. I was like referencing, you know, like we fucking were raising an apartment like creative was like going to Pier One and yeah. getting a cool candle holder, you know. But like we've been to your house and your house is almost like a venue in and of itself. Yeah. And we built the that. The way it's designed. Yeah. We, I mean, look, um, again, I feel like we have a natural just knack for like design, but I think the secret to life is pressure. If someone were to ask me. How the fuck do you do what you do? I create pressure. So for example, I've never catered a party in my life. I spent two years working with tax audits. I went to culinary school where I never really went to class. And I was just like the fucking pirate badass that ran an underground catering company within the school. Um, And Yelp, all eyes on me, elite Yelpers who go see the best of the best. And instead of being like, yeah, I'll just make some cool sliders and I'll be a part and I'll build a station with a little desk because I'm a new company. I told them that I would throw the raddest party ever and I only had seven days and I've never done this before. And I talked huge game to give myself the capability of being at the epicenter of that party. So the pressure created a monster. And, and, and I, I get that all the time where people are just like, oh no, you're just so, so, I'm like, I'm not very talented. I create pressure. Diamonds are built under pressure. Gold is built under pressure. All the most rare things are built under pressure. The problem with motherfuckers these days is they're so afraid to fail. They never promise anything to anybody. They always give themselves a backdoor, some bullshit loophole, which allows for them to give themselves an excuse to fail. I wasn't that guy. I told people, I'm the best. You're never going to see anything better than what I'm going to create. When deep down inside, I knew I wasn't. But I have no choice now. Either I'm going to let myself Mm -hmm. down or I'm not. And I'm not willing to wake up every single day and look in the mirror and think I'm a loser because mm-hmm. we're all our own worst critics, right? Mm-hmm. And that was why I was able to do what I do. Mike, out of curiosity, I know we on the podcast, we always talk about people's successes and people's failures and you know all the experiences. I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to ask you, how do you define failure? I think failure is um, waking up thinking that you've lost your second chance. That's it. Life gives us so many second chances. You can redefine yourself every day. A failure is somebody who starts their day thinking there's no hope. You failed at understanding the way the universe works. The universe gives everything a second chance. The whole basis of the principle of physics is no energy can be lost. Every rule that we have discovered of the way the universe works is based off of that. You can't lose in the universe. Energy is just recalibrated and turned into something else. So if that's the way the universe works, and I live in that universe, 
then why would I wake up thinking that I can't do something? I could do whatever the fuck I want to do. Mm-hmm. The entire city can turn on me. I can fail miserably in public and I can still redefine myself mm-hmm. because that's the world that I was put into and just the same way of every single mm-hmm, one of mm-hmm, us. Mm-hmm. So to me, failure is a, is a failed relationship with the universe. There is no other failure. Losing money, that's not failure. Mm-hmm. It's losing a connection with the system. Some people call it God. Some people call it spirituality. Some people don't call it anything because they're completely lost. But to me, that's the only failure is if you lose grips with the fact that this fucking place is a place to dance in. Mm-hmm. You throw this amazing party for Yelp and now you're like, okay, not only did I promise them this badass dope party, I delivered it. I'm sure you have this amazing ego boost, your confidence boost, and you're like, okay, I'm going to continue doing this. What does Michael K do next? I just literally took every single opportunity that came my way and I found a way of you know, scoring those deals. I think the, the, the biggest, like the biggest advantage that I've had is I didn't give a fuck about the money. So to me, it was just like a check mark. Hmm. So if someone was like, Hey, I'm interested in working with you. What that meant to me is there is no way in the world you're going to work with anyone but me. And if it's a money thing, no worries. I'll do it for free. So I just kept getting myself into new parties. Some of them, it would line up and they would have the budget. Awesome. Others, I would steal events from Wolfgang Puck. One of my biggest clients is Beverly Hills Porsche. The way I was able to have Beverly Hills Porsche, who's given us hundreds of thousands of dollars to host their events, is because I got word that Wolfgang Puck was going to do their event. I approached them and I said, I will do it for whatever he's going to do it for, divided by three, but I'll do three times more than he does. How does that sound? They were like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, that, that, that's exactly what I mean. Is there a way you're going to say no to this? No. So what happened? I did a giant party for $3,000. I brought in screens and makeup artists and outfits and character actors. Mm-hmm. And I blew it out of the water. And I earned myself a seat next to a giant company. Because I understood I have to earn this shit, man. Just because I did a great party for Yelp doesn't mean that the entire world now is going to open up their floodgates to me. I do it till today. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people, don't, people aren't ready to fight, bro. That's the problem today. People aren't ready to fucking bleed. They're not ready to get into conflict. They're not ready to topple somebody over to be able to succeed. They want it to be convenient. And that was, that was my tenacity. I was like, great, cool, more phone calls, more opportunities. And I just kept promising big game. I kept telling everybody, you're not going to find anybody better than me at doing this. Mm-hmm. And you think I believed it? No, I knew that there was people better than me at doing this. But I just kept promising that I would be the best and I would lose sleep and I would abuse my body and I would stay up 24 hours a day, five days in a row until I couldn't see, but I made sure that my clients were happy mm-hmm. and I made sure my employees were happy and I made sure my mom and dad were happy watching me succeed. And I just kept pushing hard, you know, and I lost a ton of money in the process because not every single gamble wins. Right. I've done great things for people, lost money on the project and had them turn out to be absolute assholes. But what I lost in money, I gained in an understanding of people. Mm-hmm. And now I can read them better. 
Now I know a fucking bullshitter when he's in front of me. I can tell by the way someone taps their feet when they're talking to me if they're full of shit. And I've gotten better. But I still take risks and I still believe in people. So, you know? so since that time, you've thrown massive corporate events and you've done festivals and you've done just everything imaginable in terms of like, you know, catering and hosting uh -huh. events. Uh, most recently one for Virgin Orbit, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I know recently you, you did sort of like a rebrand. Um, mm -hmm. You were Kitchen 12,000 before and now you're kind of taking it in a different direction. Tell us more about why that rebrand came about and, and where you see it going. I always felt like life is an experiment. Like it's like the planet is in the hands of a creative company, like a branding agency. You know how like when you're um, in marketing and advertising, you have like case studies. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you know, it'd be cool. Like what if Coca-Cola was my client? You know, the way I see the world is like some superpower was given a planet that can harbor life. And this whole thing is just like a branding opportunity of how you can manipulate the entire like planet of Earth. So as a component of that, I always told myself, Mike, don't ever feel like you're married to anything you're doing, any name, any color. So like treat yourself like you have a company on your hands and you're a branding agency and you can just keep deploying and trying new things. And I felt like there came a time in the last six months to a year when the project needed to be like reconfigured. That the, the, the idea that I had eight, nine years ago of creating a catering company from the future took me to where I am now. But now I'm in belief that it's not about the future. You know, we're so focused on digitalism and apps and we live in a day and age where it's like freaking you, you guys brought these microphones with you mobily and we're having like a full radio quality caliber podcast right now. Like the future and digitalism are moving at a great pace. I mean, it's, the future is now. The future it's, it's, is now. It's right now. Yeah. So I feel like now for someone that wants to be a force in humanity, my responsibility is to represent the past. Because today, more than ever, people are not very well studied on the past. If you pull a random kid, like, they'll know everything about what's going on right now. But, like, they won't really know too much about what happened before them. And I, because, you know, we were talking about this downstairs yeah. earlier, Narcissus, is because history has been almost perfect at repeating itself, to be able to predict the future and be influential in the future, you really have to understand the past. Mm -hmm. So I now feel that my responsibility, not only on an ethnic level as an Armenian, but as a human in general, is to reestablish my catering company as a catering company, not that's foreseeing the future, but instead is proposing the past. And like subsequently, I will be dictating the future by doing so. So are you saying that you want to be essentially, you know, it's like what you want to be doing with the company is like an homage to the past. However, you want to be recreating the past or do you want to take the lessons of the past, present them in the present, and then thus affect the future as a result? The latter and both. A, a literal example is I'm converting my operation to charcoal. Okay. So I'm doing everything I can to have all the food come from charcoal, above ground, underground, or in clay ovens. Because I feel like it's important for us to experience that. Mm -hmm. You know, like the people of the past who created the opportunities of today gathered around those circumstances. I don't think that they were circumstantial. Right. I don't think it was coincidental that it just happened to be, I'm like, no, fire, looking at fire, feeling heat, creating fire, you know, as the source of life is something that, you know, like we need to get reacclimated with. Mm -hmm. Everything now is a button. 
Your lights turn on with an app. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gas is conveniently funneled into your pipes. You want to turn an oven on, you can do it with your phone. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thankful for the convenience when it comes to feeding the masses, but mm-hmm. I also understand how that affects people, their authenticity, mm-hmm. and their interactions today. So I want to create simple tools, for example, that bring people together. And of course, I have blind faith. I don't mm-hmm. know what this will do for people. But my gut tells me that by holding on to some of the traditions of how gatherings took place in the past, I feel like can only do good things. And someone I think who's done that is I saw a show on Netflix, Chef's Table, Francis Maumon or Maumin, that he basically what he does is he has a bunch of restaurants. He's in the hospitality space, but he uses nature, uses the outdoors. I think one of the places he lives is in Patagonia in Argentina, and he literally takes firewood or takes branches from wherever he is and his team comes with him they build the fire pits they put the potatoes underground and he literally uses the earth as you know his tool to recreate kind of like what you were saying the past and it's something that i can connect to what you said early on you said you said this early on about you know how you know just family and how your parents had this struggle and they had a choice you know when you kind of grow up with a struggle you have a choice and i think what you've done now and what you're trying to do by, you know, focusing on the past is choosing to do something, choosing to do something bigger than just food and hospitality, but really kind of educating folks and, you know, through food or through connection or through the party. Do you feel as though when somebody comes to a Michael K event that they become a part of you, or at least that you are giving them a part of you? Well, yes. And, and, at the end of the day, food, fire, phones, they're just instruments. And the question is, what's the aim? You know what I mean? The mission. Like, like what are we trying to accomplish mm-hmm, here? Mm-hmm. So, like, that is loud for me. So, I'm trying to accomplish the freedom of man. Well, like, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you ever face anxiety? Yes, especially in LA. I think that it's... It's a no-brainer, yeah. Okay. Patrick, are you stressed about things at times? Of course. Okay. So you're young, you're good-looking, you're healthy, um, you live in an amazing city. You know, like fundamentally, like we shouldn't be stressed. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's, uh, That's not subjective to me. When you really look at where we are. When you really look at where we are, we shouldn't be stressed. Mm -hmm. But we are. Right. You know, the reason we are is because we're aimless, we perceive life as this infinite target. We don't give ourselves something to reward ourselves with as far as an accomplishment goes. We just look at this potential. If I can build a fire that can gather people and I can get their attention away from their phones and their bank accounts, then I can verbally explain to them how I feel. And, in, and next, they can explain how they feel this authentic communication mm-hmm. that takes place between people is the cure to stress. 100%. It's the cure to anxiety. We are social beings, my brothers. The problem on earth is that we have disconnected ourselves with the beauty of just smiling at somebody, communicating with somebody. So if, if I were to say that, that I think that a Michael K party is a unique party, I would say yes, because I get up on a microphone, and I speak to all my guests, and I tell them exactly why 
I am having speak. this party. You, you jump on the table. I you jump walk on the around. tables and I walk <laughs> around is because I'm just trying to use different tools to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. The reason why we're sitting here is because you guys feel like you can tell stories to people somewhere in cyberspace that can be affected by us mm-hmm. and can in turn become free mm-hmm. of the mental incapacitation that comes from right. stress and anxiety and all this shit. Right. And I think more so, and I think Pat agrees with me, you know, we go through life, we go through school, you know, in these ethnic families, we're told that there are these limitations, there are these borders that you mentioned earlier. But then we're exposed to this whole new world that, you know, you're like, shit, you know, I was restricted for all this time. That's all I know. But I know that I have the ability and the capability to know more than that or to be more than that. And now you're stuck. And I think that's also a reason why this anxiety, this stress, you know, especially in the millennial generation and younger folks, that that exists. And that causes us to be unhappy, to not be able to kind of focus on our full potential. And I think you brought up a great point with technology. As much as technology is advanced, I think what it's done is we've lost human touch. We've lost human connection. And I think that there are a lot of companies, a lot of founders that focus still on technology, which is great, whatever. Let them do what they're doing. But at the same time, they're creating this environment. They're creating humanity in a way that is robotic. People can't sit down anymore face to face. And when we have these conversations and we hear from our listeners, they say, shit, like, why didn't we hear about this before? Like, why couldn't we tap into our creative side or why couldn't we pursue a passion, whether for money or just to have a good time, right? So do you feel as though that, you know, your story is something that is practical and pragmatic for others to kind of, you know, listen to and say, shit, like, we want to tap into that. We want to be a part, we want to be more in tune with ourselves. And how can they do that? Oh, I think that for sure, um, every single human being on this planet is looking for someone to tell them it's okay. It's okay to just be free. Mm-hmm. You take the most wealthy people in the world. No. Sit them sit them down right here. Every single one of them feels like they're in prison because we are headed towards a direction that's so robotic that we are like destined to fail at the at the art of freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, this technology does this for you now and use this tool. I just got a Tesla. The fucking thing drives itself. I don't give a fuck. Like, like, yeah, it's great. But Elon, thank you, you know, moving us faster and faster. But my question is, why? You're going to get us to Mars. Why? You're going to be able to have our cars move faster and more swiftly than before. Why? Where are we going? No one knows, yeah. So no one's answering the question of what are we trying to accomplish in our short, finite lives here. It's all about how much faster can we do it? How much more conveniently can we do it? So the, the, the long and short of it is this. Until you love yourself, you're not going to be able to love anything. Loving yourself requires you to have to set a standard for what you need to do to love yourself. Mm-hmm. We have these, like, these fallacies. Everyone today thinks that if they get money, they're going to be happy. But where is the proof of that? I think, in fact, it's the opposite. When you're, if you're spending so much time to make money, you're not really going to have time to spend that money that you want to earn. What does it take to be happy? This is really the magical question. And I know that Michael K has a formula that he's talked about with us before. Yeah. And yeah. I really do want you to kind of go over, over that <laughs> yeah, with yeah. You know, our listeners. Yeah, to me, there's a basic formula. You know, um, laughing, dancing smiling, singing, you know, th- these are things that like, that 
like physiology anatomy uses to like say like hey by the way that guy's happy because mm-hmm. if i walk next to somebody and they have a droopy face i don't care if i ask them how they're doing and they say great you're not doing great bro but if someone's hysterically laughing and dancing i'm really confident that they're doing great they're having a good time now i'm not saying you should be laughing and dancing every second of your life but ultimately my happy radar is based around one simple math problem you take the total amount of time that you're alive as a denominator, and you take the total amount of time that you're laughing, singing, dancing in bliss as a, as a, a unit of time. You divide those together and you get a fraction. You get something less than one. Mm-hmm. The higher that number is, the more fruitful your life was. Mm-hmm. So the art of a smile, the, the art of rhythmic dancing, not considering how you look or how other people perceive you, communicating with strangers, and just being blissful in general is something that we've lost Mm -hmm. because we have prioritized other things over happiness. Mm -hmm. And this is not the problem. This is my problem. Right. The problem I'm trying to fix. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking for anyone to agree with me. I believe that the world will be a better place for me, my children, and the people on it, past, present, and future, if we can have more fun. Mm -hmm. That's why I went into catering. That's why I only cater celebrations. That's why I try and find a way of shining a light on people during celebrations by giving toasts, checking up on tables, having a good time with my wait staff, putting them together, using any opportunity to be a vocal leader to speak on behalf of happy over sad. Mm Maybe I'm just a neo hippie that's like like just trying to, to reincarnate the 60s and the 70s. Or maybe I'm just fucking me, bro. And, and, and I was designed this way to be this way. But one thing I do believe is that I'm not alone in that population of people who's looking for something more when it comes to this life experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great segue into what what I was going to ask next is like when someone when someone goes to a Michael K event or someone comes just in a simple interaction with you and I think folks listening to this podcast would feel the same way is like there's this element of just surprise this kind of shock that people feel like I've never seen this before I've never felt this way before around somebody um, now I think that kind of is interesting to me because when someone thinks about like a business that they're working on or and oftentimes this is something that's preached by a lot of business people, entrepreneurs, is you kind of almost need to have this kind of like end game in sight, like know where you stop, right? Um, So that way you kind of almost reverse engineer it or somehow like get to your final goal. It sounds like for you, that's not the case. You're kind of just each and every single day trying to be the best version of yourself and, and just stay as happy as you can. And at the same time, live a, you know, make enough money to like sustain your life, but it's money's not the goal. Now, what is the end all sort of be all for you? Like, do you have this kind of one thing that your mind is focused on? Like, that's where I want to be when I'm looking back at my life. Like, this is what I want it to have accomplished. Or is it kind of just take it day by day and I stop when I stop? Yeah, I don't, you know, I think the biggest, um, the biggest confusion in man is, is the idea of time. You know, because we've been fooled to believe time exists, we have plans for time. When I look back, the fuck I'm looking back right now. What do you mean when I look back? Mm -hmm. Like, who is to say that tomorrow is going to come? 
why would I waste my time thinking about what I'm going to do next year mm-hmm. when I know that if I calibrate myself well enough with what's going on now, my natural instinct will do what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't drop on this planet today. I was raised here. So the end game is to start off every day ready to have the best day of my life. Mm-hmm. And whatever comes my way that day, I will solve it. And the best thing about modern capitalism is you don't have to worry about making a plan. Someone will come and shit on your face and send you a letter that will require you to have to make a plan about next week. Some CPA will call you and say, hey, by the way, bro, the 15th is coming. Everybody else has a plan. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. They'll make the fucking plan for you. They'll tell you when shit has to be done. They'll send you late payment letters if you forgot stuff and you'll react to them and then you'll automatically get yourself into the rhythm. Mm -hmm. Time is the problem. People don't value time. They think they have an amount of time they're going to live. We all think we're going to live to 90 or 100. And in your mind, you're asking yourself, if I don't, that's going to suck. Who made up that random bullshit? Time is now. Tomorrow may never come. So I want to make the most out of today. And that's why I chat with everybody everywhere I go. Because I truly don't believe if tomorrow is going to come. It's tomorrow that's the problem. That is the cause of the anxiety or tomorrow. the stress. Tomorrow is the problem. The problems, yeah. yeah. Tomorrow is the problem in our vocabulary, in our psyche, in our lives, in the system. Everyone's thinking about tomorrow. And then they're thinking about what yesterday is going to look like from tomorrow. But this is all made up. There is no piece of science that's proven to us that tomorrow actually exists. We're just vessels living in a body, perceiving an augmented reality that's limited to our five senses. Your eye can take a different shape. If you've done enough psychedelic drugs like I have, you'd realize none of this is really what you think it is. Just a, like a temporary coincidental perspective you have based on the calibration of evolution. So tomorrow, fuck tomorrow, bro. My master plan, I don't have a fucking master plan. I just want to be the best me I could possibly be every day. And so far, it's worked just fine. I own multiple businesses. I have awesome luxuries in my life. Are there people with more money than me? Hell yeah. Are there chefs that are doing better than me? In the eyes of who? Maybe. But last time I checked, motherfucking no one's having more fun than me on planet Earth. That's my radar every single day. And I can tell by how much people are dancing. That's how I know how much fun you're having. Are you walking like a robot or are you slithering like a snake? Are you standing stiff like a tree or are you moving like the resonations of sound waves through air? Life is super simple, bro. Have fun and deal with the bullshit when it comes. Whether or not you do anything, you're going to deal with bullshit. You might as well hump the air while you're doing it, bro. Love it. Very true. Well, Mike... Thank you for a great conversation, man. I, I feel like we can just sit here and talk all day and like just life and anything. And I, I think we've, this is like the fourth or fifth time we've done this. And um, hopefully we can have more episodes with you and uh, follow up on all this stuff. But we, you know, we're, we're excited to see where you take your mm-hmm. businesses, but also just where you go in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're looking forward to, to being being there for the ride. Yeah. We're in this together, boys. Let's do it. Thanks, Thank Mike. Thank you.